Sunday, we're in Genesis 33. We're taking a few weeks to look at the journey of Jacob as we sort of ramp back up into Genesis in the fall season here. And here we read about a reunion. Now, I'm not sure how many of you had the opportunity to attend a reunion of some sorts. Obviously, we think about our high school reunion, for example. We mistakenly think we're going to go back and relive the glory days, right? But we realize that everyone is old and fat and falling asleep at 830. That's just the way it is. Now, the same thing with reunions of rock bands. So back in the 80s, the police were and still are one of my all-time favorite bands, Frontman Sting. But they had a notoriously rocky relationship working together, the three of these guys. And so at the height of their fame, they had just released the Synchronicity album, one of the highest grossing albums of all time, and they broke up. And of course, I was personally devastated, which come to find out some years later, my heart leapt with gladness because I heard they were getting back together and they were going to re-record all of their greatest hits into this new album and their reunion lasted, wait for it, all of one song, right? See, even in reunion, storybook endings are not guaranteed and Jacob has to be wondering how this 20-year reunion with his brother Esau is going to go. Because as we talked about last week, Jacob is returning home with a boatload of baggage. He left carnage everywhere in his wake some 20 years previous when he dressed up as Esau and deceived his father. And he cheated Esau out of his birthright and its inheritance. And his mom spirited him away in the middle of the night to go live with Uncle Laban 400 miles away and now he is returning home finally to face Esau and last week we said we talked about this idea that before though Jacob could meet Esau Jacob had to meet God God had to do a work there God had to do a work in Jacob before he could do a work in his relationship with Esau and that's a great lesson for us right A lot of us are praying, hoping, God, do a work in this relationship, do a work in this family, do a work in this person, do a work in this estranged um, situation that I'm a part of. And oftentimes God says, wait, because I've got to do something in you first. And that's what he did with Jacob. Remember they had the wrestling match and God crippled Jacob at his greatest point of physical strength to remind Jacob, just like God wants to remind us. That the power to heal and change hearts within relationships does not lie with us. Because if they did, we would have figured this out a long time ago. We would have waved our magic wand. We would have said the things we need to say. We would have implemented this reconciliation process or that restoration process. But God wants to remind Jacob, Jacob, it is only by my power and my grace that I can work in this situation. And so what, can, so what we're going to see this morning is that Jacob has to walk in faith. And that one of the things that Ligon Duncan says is the primary lessons of Jacob's life is that over and over and over again, God is wanting to teach Jacob, Jacob, will you rely on me alone? Not your gifts, not your intellect, not your cunning. Will you rely in me and on me alone? 
And so as we unpack this reunion, we're going to find out a lot about forgiveness and reconciliation and mercy. And we're going to find out things, hard things even, that we need to apply to our own lives. So we have two points this morning. This is where we're going. First of all, we're going to talk about the lavishness of grace. And secondly, and maybe more soberly, the limits of grace. But before we dive in, let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we just confess as your people this morning, we need your help. We think about all the relational carnage and brokenness around the world and in our country and our cities. But Lord, we know that there's plenty of relational carnage just right here in our own lives. Maybe between people in this church, maybe in our homes and marriages, families, parenting, children, friends that once were friends but no longer, friends we've grown distant with, friends that we're estranged from. Lord, teach us something from your word this morning. We need your help. Lord, if we're going to model the good news of Jesus Christ to a dying world, we have to model the love of Christ to the people closest to us in our lives. So, Lord, would you help us this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. The lavishness of grace. Now, we're not sure what each of these brothers envisioned was actually going to happen at this 20-year reunion. I mean, maybe they saw themselves breathlessly running across the field and embracing one another, right? A picture paints a thousand words, so why can't I paint you? They're just this love fest. Or maybe they thought it was going to be more like a a Western standoff where they're at a distance and they're tapping their guns impatiently, waiting to see who's going to draw first. Maybe they thought it was going to be like two wrestlers warily circling one another, waiting for somebody to pounce. But what I want you to note here in this story is just how differently Esau and Jacob behave towards one another. And it's so exaggerated that it's almost comical. First of all, notice the groups, their entourage, their posse that they arrive at the scene with. First of all, Esau shows up with 400 men. These are militia. These are men with beards. These are men with, you know, with, with swords. And they are there to do business. And Jacob shows up to the fight with what? His kids. His, his wives, his servants. I mean, when, when you compare these two groups coming together, it's, it's such a stark contrast. Secondly, notice their posture. Jacob comes bowing down seven times in succession. So the idea, and this was an ancient Middle Eastern custom to that, that, that those who were subservient, seeking mercy from one who was higher would come and they would bow down once and they would move forward and bow down again. And so while Jacob's doing all this, you can just kind of see Esau saying, what is up with this? And Esau just takes and sprints across the field and he embraces his brother and he weeps and he kisses him and it's just, it's just a bizarre sort of confluence of what each of them are doing. And finally, look at the way they address each other. Jacob says, my Lord. I mean, when you say my Lord, you're saying you're my superior, you're my master, I'm your servant. But what does Esau say to Jacob? My brother, right? My equal, my long lost kin. Now, Was Esau planning 
on killing Jacob? We don't know. It wouldn't surprise us, though, with how impulsive Esau is, impulsive, spontaneous Esau, that he saw all these gifts that Jacob was sending him. He saw Jacob's prostate and he, prostrate, and he is just asking, hey, God, uh, you know, maybe it's time to bury the hatchet here. And he is now welcoming Jacob back into his life. But I want you to watch a, note a couple of things that are particularly noteworthy about this reunion. First of all, recall from last week that in Genesis 32, in preparation for this meeting, Jacob is sending wave after wave after wave of gifts to Esau. One wave after this, and these are gifts fit for a king. It's something like one king would give to another king. And notice here, though, that Esau initially rejects Jacob's hoard of presents. He's like, what, what is this? What are, what are you doing? And the reason he rejects them initially, listen to this, and, and because he knows what Jacob is admitting. Look at verse 8 in chapter 3. He's like, what is up with all this? And Jacob says, no, please if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. So in other words, Jacob, I, I mean, Esau, I, I'm, I'm doing this to buy some favor with you. I'm, I'm trying to appease you. Jacob is almost making an offering to Esau like Jacob is a pag, like Esau is a pagan god or a pagan deity. If I can just somehow appease him. Maybe he won't be mad. Maybe he won't be angry. Maybe he won't be hurting them. And so in refusing them, listen to this, what Esau is essentially saying is, no, Jacob, not necessary. Don't have to buy me off. You don't have to win my love. You don't have to make up for all the terrible things that you have done. And make no mistake, they were terrible. No, no, Jacob, not necessary. I forgive you. Now we know that Jacob has truly changed, that Jacob has truly been converted because look at the way he responds to Esau. Jacob then says, okay, if you're not going to take these gifts as briberies, then take them out of the generosity of my heart. See, even when, once Jacob knows, hey, you don't need to bribe your brother. He's forgiven you. Old Jacob, what would he have done? Well, man, I'm getting my stuff back, right? I'm taking my stuff and going home. I don't, no need to play this game. But no, what does Jacob do? He says, okay, then take them as a gift because there's true forgiveness. This is a, a step of true restitution on the part of Jacob. It's a, it's a point of true restoration where he, he recognizes that his brother has, has forgiven him. He doesn't have to buy his forgiveness. And so out of the generosity of his, of his heart, and the work of God, of grace of God in his life, he says, then please take them as gifts. Now look at what Jacob says in verses 10 and 11. He says, for I have, he's talking to Esau, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me. In other words, his gift had turned from a bribe to a present. Now, where have we heard this language before about seeing someone face to face? Well, of course, we saw it last week in Genesis 32. 
Listen to reminder, Genesis 32, 30. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. See, this gives us a great model in scripture. See, before we can be concerned and consumed with the reconciliation that we so desperately want with others, all of us have to come to that place where we know that there is no hindrance of fellowship between us and God. We, we have to come and say, God, I, I don't have the, I think I have the moral high ground here, but not in every way. Maybe in ways I can't even see. God, you're going to have to search my heart. God, you're going to have to pry the ickiness out of my heart before I can go deal with my brother. Before I can go attempt to make things right or before I can maybe even confront my brother or rebuke my brother or my friend or whomever. God, I need you to first of all work in me. And that's the order that we see here. Jacob is like, because I've seen God face to face. In other words, because God has restored his relationship with me, now I am empowered by his grace to go and restore my relationship with others. Now understand, Jacob had no control over what Esau was going to do. Jacob did not know how Esau was going to respond, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But first of all, before we go there, I just want to camp out on the picture of grace that we see in this passage for a moment. Now think about this for a second. You have Esau running across a field. You have Jacob laying low, prostrating himself before Esau, begging for mercy. You have Esau sort of picking him up, telling him, no need for this, my brother, I've forgiven you. What, what, does, what story does that sound like? See, that sounds an awful lot like a parable that Jesus told. In fact, I think Jesus was looking back on this story of Jacob and Esau when he told another parable, one that you are very familiar with. Luke 15. The younger son says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Sounds like Jacob, doesn't it? And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now listen. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, you can almost picture the father right, right in the middle of the younger son's speech. The father's saying, okay, enough of that. Now servants, listen, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Such a familiar passage, we have to remind ourselves of the most obvious things in it. One of the things that's notable in this parable is that the younger son, he's not looking for a lot, he's just looking for mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. So in other words, he comes to the father simply saying, Father, look, just don't 
Don't punish me. Don't kick me out of the house forever. Don't hurt me. Just, I'll, I'll take a spot in the servants' quarters. I'll, I'll go back to working with the pigs. I'm not asking for a lot here, Father, but don't ostracize me. But see, the Father, though, in this parable, doesn't just extend mercy. He also pours out grace. Now, what is grace? If mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Do you see that? So, so the Father is pouring out his mercy, saying, you're right, son, I won't punish you, but I'll, I'll go one better. I'm going to restore you to the full rights and privileges of being my son. I'm going to write you back into the will. I'm going to give you the ring. I'm going to throw the feast. I'm going to give you my robe, the shoes. See, and that's what's happening here. See, I think this is why Jesus latches on to this this story so much because it's such a picture, listen church, of the gospel. See, Jacob wants mercy. Esau says, not only that, but I'm going to give you grace. We're going to live at peace, my brother. We're going to be reconciled. We're going to live as equals. We are, we are, we are kin. We are, we are blood brothers. And from a human perspective, honestly, particularly in our culture today, with Jacob behaving this wickedly and unjustly towards his brother, our culture today, even our churches today, would just say, just wipe him out. Just completely justify. Just wipe him out. So when we hear stories like this, there's something in us, isn't it right? Isn't there that says, that's not fair. What what has this younger son done to deserve this? What has Jacob done to deserve this? And don't you see, that's the whole point. That's the shocking nature of lavish grace. Now we know why Jesus, I think, chose this story to base his parable on because he wants to remind us if this is possible even in human relationships we've begun to not even begun to dream what the lavish grace of god is like for those whom he loves first john says it like this see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, I actually like the NIV version better because I think it gets to the heart and the essence of it. Let me read that version for you. See what great love the Father has what? Lavished on us. To overflowing, to excess, more than you'll ever need. That we should be called children of God, Now listen, and that is what we are. What amazing love we have through the person and work of Jesus Christ. What great love. Through him poured out in abundance and mercy and excess beyond anything that we can ever imagine. And I just have to pause right here and ask, do you know that gospel of grace? I mean, I I know that you, most of you probably know it. But have you known it, lived it, communed with it, experienced it in this season? It's not too late. In our, in our devotional on the book of, of Revelation, remember, he invites the church in Smyrna, right, to come 
and drink and feast at the tree of life. Because the tree of life is where real life communion is for the people of God. And we get such an amazing picture of the gospel right here for Oaks. We think about the lavishness of grace. That's why this story's here. Secondly, though, and a bit more soberly maybe, we want to look at the limits of grace. Now, things are going so well through verse 11, aren't they? Just going so well. There's just... They're, you, know, you know they're sitting down, they're feasting, they're swapping war stories, they're rehearsing. And then finally, look in verse 12. Listen to what Esau says. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. In other words, why don't you come live with us, Jacob? Right? Come back and settle the, the land that we're in in Edom. We can bunk together. We could be just like the good old days, right? Just as it ever was. And then what we begin to see is just a sobering note that Jacob begins to gently but purposefully disengage himself from Esau. Let's look back at the passage. First thing that he says again is, come on, Jacob, journey with us. Go, we'll go on ahead. You follow along. We'll prepare the place for you. We got the pasture laid out. We got a nice place for you to put all your stuff. We're going to be one united family again. And what does Jacob say? Say, well, you know, you go on ahead. I, you know, we've been riding all night, and this is a little too hard on the kids, and a little too hard on the on the animals. And you know, this is this is we 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 you you go you go on ahead Esau maybe we'll catch up later then Esau in turn says well if that's the case then let me leave some folks here with you to help you and then Jacob says no 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 that, that that's not necessary and then he then he puts on this line he says I will see you in Seir that's the mountains of Seir that's to the south in Edom but what we see in this text is that then Jacob turns and promptly doesn't go south. Where does he go? North to Shechem. And he settles there. Now, one of the questions that the commentators fight about is that is, is Jacob being deceptive here? Is he, is he lying? Is he just being Jacob? And I think Bruce Walkie makes a really good point. Not necessarily. In fact, there's good reason to think that he's not. That number one, first of all, Moses and all the other places where Jacob is deceptive and lies, Moses makes a big point of noting it. As in like, bad Jacob, you're getting yourself into trouble. There is no censure of Jacob's action here by Moses who's writing Genesis. But secondly, there's, there's probably good evidence to say that what Jacob and Esau are doing here is sort of what we see in high-stakes international diplomatic negotiations. You know, in other words, where one secretary of state says to another secretary of state something, but both of them know that underneath those statements are a subtext, right? It's the real meaning. We're just being diplomatic and nice so that we can all sort of save face here. And that could very well be what's happening here. Where, where Esau is saying, okay, okay, go on. And then Jacob in verse 15, let me find favor in your sight. Which could very well just be just this implicit statement of, thank you for the invitation, Esau. But it's best 
that we go our separate ways. It's, it's, it's right that we go our separate ways. But whichever way you land on that, okay, whether it's Jacob being Jacob, I don't necessarily think so. Whether this is just diplomatic negotiations, make no mistake though, Four Oaks, Jacob is making the right decision. And that's so hard to think about, isn't it? That despite the grace and reconciliation and forgiveness that's happened, things are not going to be like they used to be. And the reason Jacob makes the right decision, because when Jacob left Canaan in the promised land 20 years before from Bethel, what did God tell Jacob to do? When you come back, Jacob, you're going to settle right here. See, Jacob, I'm calling you to be holy and set apart as a people. I'm calling you to to geographically separate from the nations around you, to not intermingle, to not marry. I'm calling you to spiritually separate yourself. Jacob, you're going to be the father of many nations. Jacob, I've renamed you Israel. You are the promised people, and from you the promised Messiah is going to come. And you're not going to get there by intermingling and becoming like the culture around you. Jacob, I'm calling you to be set apart. Sure, go visit Esau. But you're going to settle and live right here. And this points us again to something important, right? Forgiveness and grace don't necessarily fix everything this side of eternity. You've heard me share this illustration before, but I went back and watched it again. Amber Geiger was the police woman in Dallas who was convicted of murder. She was a police officer who killed an unarmed black man because she mistakenly went into his apartment while he was eating and shot him dead. And in court, Brant Jean, who is the brother of the man that was accidentally killed, brother of the victim, during his victim impact statement, he looked at Amber and said, despite what you've taken from my family and the, and, and the pain that will forever be there, I choose to forgive you. I want what's best for you. And remember, they hugged, and it was emotional, and it was a picture of the gospel. But here's the thing. She still has to go to jail, right? She's still in jail at this point. There are, and this is so hard for us, there are limits on what grace can do. And understand what I mean by that. When I say limits, I don't mean that there is a deficiency in grace. That's not what I mean at all. Grace addresses the most fundamental, important problem that any of us could ever have, and that is estrangement from God. Grace speaks directly to that. Grace remedies that through Jesus Christ and his death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can die unreconciled with all the people in your life. But if you're reconciled to God, his grace has been poured out from you. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. So that, that We don't mean that grace itself has limits it just means that there are relational limits in this fallen broken world to what grace can 
and cannot fix right now. See, sometimes, despite our best intentions, and and this is Jacob, by the way, right? He's coming to repent. He's coming to give gifts. He's coming to confess his sin to Esau. He can't control Esau. He doesn't know what Esau is going to do. And I think this is the reality Jesus is pointing to in Luke 17. Listen to this passage. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If you're, if, now listen, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if, if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Because if someone hurts you, but refuses to acknowledge it, refuses to repent, and some of you maybe have grown up in abusive families or have been part of abusive relationships or marriages where you've gone back and tried to make things right and you've tried to to confront things that have happened that have been swept under the rug, that have been evil and unjust and wicked. But some of you have had so often had that experience They just don't want to go there. There's too much at stake. The cost cost is too high. Can you forgive that person? Seems that Jesus is saying you can't forgive that person. Here's what I think this means. Yes, you can forgive that person. Right now, your perpetrator or the person who's harmed you may be dead. There, There is no more chance for human reconciliation. Can you forgive that person in your heart? Absolutely. But there is a sense in which that forgiveness will have a limited relational reality where reconciliation, even despite the fact that in your heart you have released bitterness, anger, and turned it over to God, the reality that there is relational limits to what's going on where reconciliation is not possible. And hear this, maybe not advisable. See, when you've been a part of sexually abusive family systems or violence in your past, one of the worst things that you can do is automatically assume that everything is going to be fine if we just give this thing one more chance. That's not necessarily biblical reconciliation. Sometimes it's like Jacob, where we forgive that person in our heart. We may even voice that forgiveness to the person who has violated us. But because of wisdom, because of the gospel, because of our witness, because of the health of our family, we are called to do exactly what Jacob does here. Because this is a complex thing. I'm speaking in generalities at 40,000 feet, and some of you already right now are filtering these things through your reality at ground zero and that's why these things take wisdom that's why you have church leaders and pastors and elders and community group leaders in the body of christ to help you process and sift and to work through these things and to pray together and say god what does faithfulness look like here in this situation what this means and this is so important is that you and I never stop needing grace in our relationships. You've heard me quote Tim Keller 
infinite number of times here, but one of the things that he says is so foundational, is so true, is the gospel isn't just for non-Christians. The gospel is for Christians too. See, you and I need the gospel of grace every single day, just like Jacob. What does it mean to walk out this relationship? What does this mean, God, for us to be in this unreconciled state? We've got to like eat Thanksgiving dinner together and then we see each other and it's kind of awkward and God, how do I navigate this? See, grace and forgiveness have been extended and received in this story, have they not? But things just quite aren't the same. One of the things that Dave Harvey often said and still says, he said, you know, closure is overrated. And I know what he means by that. Do you realize that Jesus died never making peace with his opponents relationally? You know that? However, through his death, he made the most important peace. And that's peace for his people. Where we could be reconciled to God, where he has purchased peace through his blood, which we receive by grace. And you and I will never stop needing that grace for as long as we live on this earth. And Jacob is going to need every bit of that grace in the days ahead. Because verse 18 ends this chapter on an ominous note where it says that Jacob inexplicably, doing so good so far, stops 30 miles short of his destination in Bethel. And he decides to set up his camp in Shechem for 10 years. And as we're going to see, that has some devastating consequences for his family. There's some devastating heartache on the way. In fact, this is going to set a trajectory of 25 years in Jacob's family where there is going to be acrimony and bitterness and pain, which all points to the opportunity even more for God's grace to be shown. And we're going to see that as we walk through this book. Remember, this side of heaven, Jacob, had been, his name was changed to Israel. It was his new identity. It was who he was in God, in relationship with God, but he was still having to fight off Jacob, that old, selfish, sinful, fleshly man. And that's all of us, church. That's why we need the grace of God. And we need to recognize what it can do, the most important things that it can do right here, right now. Trusting that one day his grace will make everything right when he comes again. Let's pray.